this is Ian Williams with the Foreign Press Association in New York. And uh, I've got to make sure I get your name pronounced properly. Laura? Forsick. Forsick, Forsick. You know, when you get the combinations of, uh, <laughs> it's almost like English GHs, nobody's sure how to pronounce them. So Laura is uh, with the uh, Beyond Earth Institute, amongst many other things, and is a prominent advocate and commentator on the space uh, on, on the space efforts. And I think what we're looking at at the moment, we have 14 people in space, Laura's just told us, um, which is a world record from when Yuri Gagarin had his lonely uh, walk up there so many years ago. Don't think it's a record, but it's pretty close. Yeah, it's, uh, two shuttles worth almost. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you measure astronauts or cosmonauts. And uh, no, th this, this is a multiple miracle because it's not just a scientific miracle. It's a political miracle because uh, when the space station was started, the, when the Soviet Union had the money and the wherewithal to put people up there was um, dubious. And the U.S. might have had the money, but whether it had the will to is another question, because with Congress and uh, no nothings who didn't like money being spent, you know, since no, no senator actually gets votes from space. So they weren't that much interested <laughs> at the time. Uh, but, you know, now things have started uh, in a serious way. What, what was the breakthrough here? Because it looked like in May, I think it was, the newspaper reports that with the war in Ukraine, and with Russian cosmonauts waving secessionist flags around in international territory, it was uh, it looked as though the deal was off and it might be cancelled. Did, did it take any superhuman diplomacy behind the scenes to get into it? Oh, I'm certain there was a lot of diplomacy behind the scenes, but I wouldn't say anything changed from the status quo. Since the beginning of this conflict in Ukraine, there has been a continuation of the theme of partnership and working together, at least on the, the American side. Uh, on the NASA side, NASA has not changed its tune at all from the start of this conflict where they were continuously emphasizing the fact that we are partners with Russia and that Russia is a crucial partner. Now, on the Russian side, things have changed, um, especially since the new Russian head of Roscosmos, Yuri Boris Borisov. Um, so he has a different tone, or at least the people under him are presenting a different tone than under the previous Roscosmos director, uh, Dmitry Gozin, who was much more fanatical when it came to pro-war and pro-Putin uh, agenda and ideology. And so on the Russian side, things have changed, but on the American side, it has been status quo since the beginning. And, and you could say since the invasion of Crimea in 2014. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I just mentioned as we were chatting earlier about the fictional aspects of for all mankind had several vignettes in which the people on both sides wanted things to keep on working because they both had their sights set on orbit and outer space. Uh, regardless of the politicians and uh, without the defections it almost looks like this was replayed in real life this time as though somebody was following the script well the truth is that the um 
the threatening of breaking off relations with the space partners is actually more damaging to the Russian side than it is to any side on the West, whether that's the United States, Europe. Um, it, it's just very, very crucial that Russia maintain its partnership on the International Space Station because it has no other outlet for its cosmonauts. There is no other active cosmonaut program. They have intentions of doing a Russian space station, of building that. They have intentions of partnering with China on their lunar, uh, lunar base, lunar habitats. However, uh, the financial realities and economic situation and, and partnership realities is that Russia has nowhere to go, at least for the next several years, with its cosmonauts, with its human spaceflight program than the ISS. So if Russia were to actually break off ties completely on the ISS, it would damage Russia's uh, program much more than it would damage NASA or ESA or Canadian Space Agency or any of the other partners. Well, that was one of the things looking at. I mean, we hate to bring in sordid comparisons, but uh, the Russians ain't doing so well with their rockets on the ground in, in, in on the battlefield either. They seem to be profoundly technology deficient and we're discovering how much they're dependent on other people because um, the old autarkic system where they made everything themselves or stole them by through spies if you believe the uh, the, the tv series um was not working very well uh, so do they have the capability to send anything to the moon at the moment they have a uh, uncrewed program, scientific program called Luna, which has a long history, a decades long history of sending probes to the moon. And in fact, they have another probe, um, Luna 24, I think, don't quote me exactly on the number, that is anticipated to be launched next year. It was scheduled for this year, it got pushed. Um, but humans, no, nobody right now has the capacity to launch humans to space. Uh, NASA is currently in the midst of testing its SLS and Orion system for its Artemis One. Um, and once that is tested and proven, then the United States- so Explain can... for everybody what the Artemis oh, sure. yeah. is. So, um, the Artemis program is the return of humans to the moon and then onward to Mars and, and beyond in general. But like the first three missions are already set where Artemis one is a test of a new system called the Space Launch System with an Orion capsule on top. And it will be a test flight completely uncrewed. So no people on board um, testing this brand new system. Artemis two is going to have people on board and it will be circumlunar. So going around the moon, but not landing. And then Artemis three actually brings in partner SpaceX with its new Starship super heavy lift rocket to do a lunar landing. So the first lunar landing since 1972. And so you can claim right now that nobody has the capability of getting humans to the moon until we actually prove that this new system, the SLS rocket and the Orion capsule works and that Starship can bring people up and down from the lunar surface. So Russia is, is nowhere near that kind of level of capability and, and neither is China for that matter. China That's does. That's what I was about to say. Have you told program. the Chinese? Yes. China <laughs> has its own lunar ambitions as well with a slightly delayed timeline than NASA timeline um, and it currently is building its you know, long march series rockets which has uh, the capability of launching people to the to low earth orbit leo where there is a chinese space station but as of right now again nobody has proven that they can send people to the moon um, you know other than the fact that we have done it in the 1960s and 70s but we no longer have that saturn V rocket we no longer have that capability so we are recreating a capability with modern technology it's quite stunning that it's half a century 
since we went to the moon. Yes. And stopped. I mean, that's, uh, you know, the, the, the last lack of initiative there uh, was within our, our grasp. And I know people like yourself and me as a childhood science fiction addict were always thought that, uh, God, I, I thought, you know, I thought we'd be on Mars by now and possibly testing the first faster than light drive across. <laughs> but uh, this has not happened so far. Uh, how do we get the political wherewithal? The, the high frontier people, people like Robert Heinlein, for example, thought the idea was to persuade US governments that you could put weaponry in space and, and, and dominate everybody on the ground. And this would open the budget. It, I, I do believe it wasn't because they were so necessarily militaristic. They just saw it as a, the only way to get money out of Congress was for weapons. So if we present the space program as a weapons program, they'll fund it. Uh, and that's the way we get into space, hitchhiking on the Pentagon. Um, has that changed? I wouldn't say that's changed. That mentality still exists. And there still is a large space budget within the Department of Defense. Um, in the Space Force is now a new organization that uh, stems off from the Air Force. It's under the Air Force. And um, there are significant capabilities within the Department of Defense through the US Space Force, through the Army, um, through uh, Space Command, and, and other organizations where it is mostly on the defense side, but there is certainly offensive capabilities as well. Now, the United States does not want to weaponized space. It has already been militarized. It's been militarized since the beginning of the space age, but we do not want to weaponize it. So there was actually a really good uh, precedent set by Vice President Kamala Harris earlier this year, where she has decided uh, there is going to be a moratorium on U.S. kinetic anti-satellite tests. That's the deliberate blowing up of our own satellites. So this has been done by the United States. It's done, been done by China, by India, and most recently by Russia, where it's a testing of a capability to blow up satellites, which creates a large amount of space debris, which endangers all the satellites that are in orbit, including International Space Station. And so we do not want to do that. We do not want to pollute the orbital environment. And so there has been an effort led by the United States. And now I believe there's seven additional countries that have said that they are not going to do these kinetic anti-satellite uh, tests. Um, and there is a proposal to submit this to the, the United Nations to make it formal yeah as an international space treaty there is already a convention on the peaceful uses of outer space isn't there yeah, in fact, there's a whole UN office on the peaceful uses of outer space, and there's the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which does ban weapons of mass destruction in space. So not kinetic weapons like we've seen active, but weapons like... Kinetic weapons, basically, we're talking about throwing stones or... Yeah, very dangerous very stone throwing. Stones or, you know, Believe it or not, those stones, those, those kinetic weapons, they can do a whole lot of damage. Well, look at the dinosaurs. If any were around, they could testify... <laughs> You bring up actually an excellent point where NASA did actually just test a mission called DART to ram into an asteroid to deflect it. And those are the types of capabilities that we can use to save humanity or to destroy humanity. So there's something called dual use technology where we want to pursue positive peaceful uses like cleaning up space debris or moving satellites into safer orbits or deflecting an asteroid. But we could also use that for negative purposes, for harmful purposes as well. Are there any results yet in on the DART project? Um, was the asteroid deflected at all by um, 
Or it's going like to take a little bit of time. They need to do the observations and track the trajectory. Um, but it looked pretty good for my view. It was an amazing, amazing mission where I don't know if you saw those images of it impacting. It was straight on. I mean, it was really impressive. Yes. <laughs> Star Wars again. <laughs> Great. We have a planet destroyer. Uh, but it didn't really. It just dented it slightly, didn't it? It was. Um... But then yes, we do not have the capability of, of damaging planets, <laughs> not yet, uh, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to save planet Earth. And those are the kinds of things to be partnering internationally with. We run a, you know, use space for the benefit of all humankind and not for the destruction of humankind. Well, as TV series said, for all mankind, but how, what practical uses can you go? And we have, I mean, I'm devil's advocate here, we we have so many challenges uh, on the on the planet itself. Can we, um, you know, what is being served? What what uh, what 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 can we use to justify expenditure on space? Uh, apart from the childhood dreams and natural curiosity and the outward edge of the rest of us who are sort of committed to this idea. One interesting thing about modern technology is it is enabled by space technology and we don't even realize it. Space is a critical hardware where we use it every day. We use many satellites in our daily lives without even realizing it. So I'm talking about, for example, weather satellites that predict not only you know, the, the hurricanes that we just saw going through Florida and the, the Caribbean, and um, but also like our daily lives. We, we figure out where the, it's gonna be sunshine, where it's gonna rain, that's good for agriculture to figure that out. Um, you know, Natural disasters, we're figuring out where the flooding is or where the wildfires are. We also use GPS on a daily basis and that's not just to get directions, it's also for tracking and logistics, it's for financial transactions, but there's all sorts of ways to use those kinds of satellite systems for ways that um, help us in our daily lives without even knowing about it. There are um, different types of Earth observation satellites. So I mentioned, for example, uh, tracking. There's also ones for real estate. There's ones for um, figuring out where algae blooms are. There's ones for figuring out where airplanes are or ships. Or I mean, there's just endless possibilities of how we use satellites for the benefit of life on Earth. Agriculture is a major use of satellite technology right now. And then there's the spin-off technologies. For example, in our cell phones, we all have these cameras, and that's a spin-off technology from a NASA technology where they were miniaturizing these really great cameras. And what were they going to do with them? They actually had no idea. So they put that out there to the commercial industry, and somebody thought it would be a good idea to put them in our phones. And that's just one example of literally thousands of spin-off technologies, like portable uh, medical devices, for example, the, the kinds of things that you take around to save lives. If you can't get to a hospital, you can take it out into the field. So, so many different ways that we use technology from space or use uh, developed for space for benefit of life on Earth. Well, it's, a, it's an advance in the early years. I think Teflon nonstick frying pans were the major use. And that, then we discovered they're full of PFS, PF, the, 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 the secret chemicals. So it was a bit of a, an oblique um, benefit, but uh, what uh, space tourism was one thing that was mentioned uh, condescendingly, and I understand that many of the space tourists who go into space because they got lots of money don't like being referred to as space tourists. They presumably they like to refer themselves as uh, intrepid explorers into the cosmos. Um, now it's, it was amazing the Russians were the ones who basically privatized space in this way, weren't they? 
Yeah, that's correct. Um, so Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, has always been more willing than NASA to privatize, if you want to put it that way, to commercialize space. So um, the first space tourist, for example, Dennis Tito, he flew with um, Space Adventures, which is an American company, but in partnership with Russia. And in fact, the first commercial mission was the last mission of Mir, after Mir was commercialized or privatized through a company called Mircore. So there's just been a lot of examples of Russia needing the money. And that's key right needing there. Needing the money. That was, that, that was the point. I was they hadn't needed that funding, that extra source of, of funding for their programs. Um, whereas NASA has been less willing. Now it's it's more willing now, but it still only opens it up, opens the International Space Station up to two private astronaut missions a year. Um, and so we've seen a company called Axiom partner with SpaceX to do private astronaut missions on the International Space Station. But NASA knows that the ISS's lifetime is finite. 2030 is about when we're expecting the ISS to end its life. And so NASA has contracted with four companies or four teams of companies, I should say, to develop commercial space stations in low earth orbit. So this is the kind of advancement now that we're seeing where NASA will be a, a anchor tenant in a sense for these commercial space stations. Well, that's there's two sort of questions uh, spin off now. One is what is the current deadline for the ISS? I understand 2030 was uh, mentioned as the uh, the date for it so to dive. So bringing it back to the question of Russia, right? We had a lot of conflicting information and still have conflicting information coming out of Russia as to whether they will continue to be a partner until 2030, where 2030 is the date that NASA and the White House has said that they want to target ISS end. However, <laughs> under... Um, under Ros uh, Dmitry Rogozin, the previous director of Roscosmos, he indicated that he wouldn't to he wanted to cut off relations on the ISS much sooner in 2024, for example. So we have seen a back and forth as to whether or not Russia will continue the partnership to 2024. And right now, the latest is that they will that they will not end the partnership any sooner than 2024. It does not mean they will end it at 2024. It does mean that they are, it means that they don't really know. <laughs> it's, it's, I think, the bottom yeah. line there. And so <laughs> another thing to question is, ISS is getting old. It is over 20 years old. I used to work on ISS payloads. So I am deeply fond of the International Space Station, but it is an older system with leaks. And so it's a question of, will it get to 2030? I hope it does, but we do need to be aware of the fact that it might end sooner. What happens with the leaks in the moment? Do the astronauts have bicycle tire patches? <laughs> yes, they do have ways of fixing. They're very tiny leaks, right? So it's not a, a life critical situation, but it is an indication that the hardware is getting older. It has been through a lot of the radiation in space. You know, it is outside of a lot of the protection of the Earth environment, the Earth, the magnetosphere, and therefore it is really bombarded with micrometeorites and radiation from space. And so it's been through a lot. And we just have to be aware of the fact that it is getting older, which is why NASA is beginning to prepare for the future with commercial space stations well it's an awful lot of words in 900,000 pounds 450,000 kilos I forget what it's it's a lot of stuff to recycle I understand there's been some suggestions that we uh, the Chinese will be interested 
in the oh, second the Chinese has their station. own Tiangong space station. They, I don't believe, have any interest in the ISS, um, but they are building their own smaller space station. And they, it's crewed right now. It has people on board and they're doing international partnerships as well, just on a smaller scale. And so I would not be surprised if they continue to build up that program of making their Tiangong space station larger or um, you know, having it more diverse in terms of international partnerships. So is there any feasible chance of getting Elon Musk up there and say, hey, you know, you believe in this, go live there? So Elon Musk has always had his sights set on Mars. So that is the main motivator he has for building SpaceX, for building the Starship super heavy lift vehicle, which will eventually, he hoped, take people to Mars. Um, right now, it is in development. It's going to hopefully do its first orbital test in the next year or so. He, you never quite know with his schedules. Um, and then it will, it's already contracted to take astronauts to the surface of the moon for Artemis 3, which is probably going to be in like the 2026, 2027 timeframe is my best guess. Um, and he wants to use it for Mars. So everything he's doing right now with SpaceX and with Starship is to try to get humans to Mars. And I would not be surprised if he personally wanted to go to Mars. Inshallah, as they say in some parts of the world. <laughs> Depends what you think of Elon Musk, I suppose. What about, um, no, you say he's contracted. So these would be, this would be a NASA program to get to the moon, which he was, which he would, he's contracted to undertake. Is that right? That's right. So NASA, instead of developing entirely its own hardware, as we've seen with traditional NASA programs, um, it is contracting with commercial companies to do a partnership, sort of a, a buying the transportation rather than buying the car and that kind of thing. So it is buying a seat or an entire flight on Starship for Artemis 3. And it also has a contract to do another additional flight on the moon, at least one more after Artemis 3. However, NASA is also looking to contract with another company. So that might be Blue Origin, for example, which was the runner up with the last uh, contest that it held its last proposal for landing humans on the Mars, uh, sorry, landing humans on the surface of the moon and bringing them back safely. Well, this idea of uh, contractors, I can't remember which of the astronauts it was, the story goes that he was asked what he thought when he was on the top of, you know, x hundred tons of high explosive fuel, waiting for the few blue touch paper to expire. And he said, I think this is uh, this has been built by one hundred hundred thousand contractors, every one of whom put in the lowest bid. <laughs> yes, it's always been a chilling thought about lives are on the line. The it's weird what? thing about um, the way that we do human spaceflight is that we really do hold human spaceflight to be the utmost importance. Safety is always the utmost importance, along with getting the job done. So it's never going to be 100% safe, but SpaceX and others do take absolute care when it comes to launching people. Mm -hmm. But we were taking absolute care when the O-rings on the shuttle um, went. Right. <laughs> Hopefully and, we have learned the lessons of the space shuttle program. We have? I hope so. That's what I, I hope. No one could really say that was un very unfortunate. I was um, in, in, in school when that occurred and, and it certainly affected me. And my guess is the whole generation has changed over since then. So um, that could be both good and bad. It could be you know, bad that we might've lost lessons <laughs> with go fever and not listening to the technicians who are on the ground, um, but also good in the sense that maybe we're doing things in a new way. Well, I suppose it's good then if it, it, if Elon Musk is going to ride up on it, I presume it means that would be 
Well, you unlike don't love his, the CEO. As a unlike Elon role. Musk's billionaire colleagues such as Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, Elon Musk has not actually booked himself a seat on his own rocket yet. So Blue Shame. Origin, uh, Blue <laughs> Shepard has launched Jeff Bezos, who is the owner of Blue Origin, and um, Virgin Galactic Spaceship Two has launched Richard Branson, both to suborbital flights. But uh, Elon Musk has not yet booked himself on his own rocket. I must say that I hope that Richard Branson runs his spaceships better than he runs his train services in Britain. I don't know the train services in Britain, but he's not running the company terribly well at the moment. <laughs> Hopefully Virgin Galactic can recover from its troubles. Yes, maybe. Virgin Railways was a disaster. I'm speaking as an ex-railway person, <laughs> so I know about these things. Um, so where does the space station fit into the interplanetary um, the Mars voyages and the others. Uh, I mean, one of the ideas was it was a sort of launch platform. As, in fact, the, the moon was a, a, a launch stage, a first stage to get into uh, the planets. Is there any such gradation now on the uh, on the targets? That is certainly being considered. The um, the old line of once you get all out of the gravity well of Earth, you're halfway to anywhere. Um, so it's certainly being considered that once you refuel in space or on the surface of the moon, it is much easier to launch from space or the surface of the moon to get wherever you want to go. But for right now, in the short term, there is no concrete plans to do that. NASA does want to go beyond Earth. I'm sorry, beyond the moon. It does have plans to go elsewhere in the solar system. It does have a very active and and significant planetary science program of exploring uh, the other planets of the solar system and, and the different planetary bodies, the moons and asteroids, with probes. And there might be someday money and um, uh, willingness to send people. But for the near term, we are focused right now on the moon. Uh, and the hope is that as we learn to live and work on another planetary body and a closed system where we can't necessarily come uh, and back to Earth very easily and get supplies or return in case of an emergency, because Mars is significantly farther away than the moon. So we need to learn how to live and work in a closed system on another planetary body that is very hostile to human life before we can get onward to the rest of the solar system. Well, if I can invoke the fictional aspects again, I think it was very prescient of uh, the TV series to, to name their settlement Jamestown. You know, you're on your own, folks. The <laughs> difference there is that anywhere on Earth is more Har is, is more harboring of life than anywhere else off Earth. So for example, there's always microbes, no matter where you go on the surface of the planet, no matter how harsh the environment you go, deepest ocean trench versus the coldest Arctic areas, there's still life. Life finds a way. There's still the atmosphere. There's still a way to protect us from the radiation environment of the sun and deep space. There's so much more, um, so much more chance of survival on the surface of the planet or deep ocean than there is anywhere else off planet. And so the difference there is that we need to learn how to live in a place that was never meant to have human life or any life. Um, as far as we know, there is no human life elsewhere in the solar system. We are looking. We are looking for signs of life and we're looking for active life, but there's certainly no life on the, on the moon. Um, and there's very little chance of there being life on Mars and certainly not the surface of Mars, maybe underneath the subsurface. And so we are going places where life has never existed, never intended to exist on the surface of the moon. How are we gonna live there? How are we gonna make sure that life thrives? And that's the lesson we need to learn. 
So why are we going there would be the question that many people would ask. Why not? Why do we climb the highest mountain to quote, you know, sort of quote. Uh, because it's Because it's there because we are explorer, explorers. I'm sorry, maybe that's like a Freudian slip, right? Um, so we are explorers, but we also want to exploit the rest of the solar system. And that's not necessarily negative. You can see that as a negative in terms of mm -hmm. the fact that um, there is pristine surface of the moon that can tell us some really great science about the Earth moon system and how it's formed. But we also want to make it sustainable. So if we can go to um, the moon or to asteroids and mine the materials there and we can make some kind of profit whether that is using that material for the purposes of staying on the surface of the moon or as you said earlier using that as a fuel depot to launch off earth they means that the resources of earth are no longer our limiting factor we can use the resources of the rest of the solar system to go where we want to go to live the way we want to live and so we have infinite resources out there if we can get them if it is cost effective and feasible to get them um, so we are explorers and we also want to make that buck so what is um cost effectiveness has anyone done the numbers on this it is currently not cost effective for a private company to go on their own. However, that is why NASA is leading the way with international partnerships, government agencies. It's it's a little bit analogous to when government agencies first launched satellites to low Earth orbit or to any orbit. Um, it was not cost effective, but government agencies paved the way and it became much more routine. The technology developed, the procedures developed, and now we have commercial companies taking over where government have been. For example, um, GPS is a government system. That's a government uh, way of launching a constellation of satellites that tell us uh, global positioning and, and timing and nav global positioning, navigation and timing. And now commercial companies are starting to get into that. So it's a way of the government paving the way for commercial companies to go further. Well, that brings one of the points. Commercial companies are getting into it. Uh, there's uh, Elon Musk. A lot of these involve putting even more potential debris into low Earth orbit uh, with implications for astronomy and for the safety of satellites already in orbit. Um, is there no way to regulate who's putting up what? Ah, there is Where? an excellent debate going on right now, where within the United States, there is no regulatory body for space debris or um, you know, that kind of space traffic management. There's a discussion as to who should be organizing that, but there's no all-encompassing organization. However, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, just put out a uh, draft proposal which I believe they just signed. <laughs> they, they, I think they made it official recently that says that no longer are we relying on this guideline. It wasn't even a binding rule. It was a guideline of deorbiting satellites after 25 years of their useful life. So not 25 years total, but after their life is done, after the satellite is no longer useful, having 25 years of deorbiting. That was the rule within the United States. And it was not binding. So some organizations did not follow it. And it was not an international gu guideline necessarily that we're all going to or all organizations, all international organizations followed. So the FCC have now changed the policy to make it five years, and it is now binding under any U.S. entity or anyone who wants to operate within U.S. markets. So that is beginning to change, and it is only the first step 
that hopefully now we can take more action of satellite surfacing. So making satellites last longer, whether that is refueling them or changing their orbits to a higher orbit or um, adding modules, whatever it happens to be to extend the lifetime of satellites. So we're not constantly replacing satellites and also deorbiting more quickly when they're no longer useful so that there's no dead satellites that are staying around for decades causing a hazard. Yeah, um, what was the previous space station that landed up in the Pacific? Was it a... I think it was Skylab. Was it Skylab? Was yeah, it Skylab? And, and no one was quite sure what was going to come down. <laughs> I mean, statistically, you could feel fairly safe, but uh, it's still quite a frightening thought that someone's about to drop a 20 tons of steel and other components down on people's heads. And we still have this problem with spent rocket boosters. So we're still not handling that properly, especially China, for example, which does not do any kind of controlled deorbit burns of its spent rocket boosters. Um, but the United States is also guilty of this. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why reusable rockets are a better way to go, not only for affordability of reusing the rocket and not having it burn up, but also for making it return safely back to the earth, whether it's you know, on land, landing back on land or splashing down in the ocean or landing on a barge or being caught by a helicopter. You know, all of these mean that there is no booster that is just orbiting Earth causing, you know, causing a potential problem. There was um, one of the issues that was coming up about the, 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 the coming down <laughs> is uh, how, I mean, is there any legal framework if a American booster drops on my house, who do I sue? Uh, that is under the UN, or, sorry, the Outer Space Treaty, the UN Outer Space Treaty, which it says the launching state is responsible. So if it is launched by a US entity, whether that's a private company or a government agency, it is the responsibility of that launching state. That might be the United States, for example. So the United States is, is responsible for any damage done by its space hardware, whether it is government hardware or commercial hardware. Has anyone collected? Yes, Many in ones? fact, I think there was a president of Canada, I think, collected for, in Russia. I don't remember exactly the details, but I think it was some kind of Russian <laughs> damage done. This was years ago. Mm, well, you know, things have changed with the <laughs> international scene and cooperation now. Could you guarantee anybody paying up? No, I think there's no guarantees when it comes to international law. There are treaties, and I'm not a, law a lawyer, but uh, my understanding is that they are, you know, in agreement, and hopefully countries will follow, will abide by the agreements that they sign. So, so what are the, um, I was going to say exit strategies, but it's more the entrance strategy for the space station when it, yeah, so NASA does has it stay up? Does it get boosted into higher orbit or does it crash? I wish. See, I, I am very fond of the International Space Station. However, NASA does not think that it is feasible or you know, worthwhile to keep it in orbit indefinitely as a museum, which some people have proposed. So NASA has a plan to deorbit it within two years. Um, they have it, I think, beginning in 2028, I believe, where they begin the process of deorbiting it. And again, you want it to be a controlled deorbit so that it's not deorbiting over a populated area that usually there's a, a site over the Pacific Ocean, where they choose to deorbit spacecraft, um, you know, satellites, so that it does not pose a danger to human lives. It does pose a danger to other lives, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but that is the current goal, is that it will safely be deorbited after about two years' time. 
So does it come down in, in stages, as it were, in installments, or does it come down as one big bang? I don't know those details. So that's a good question. I'd have to go look up that NASA plan. Anybody can view the proposal that NASA has put out. I think they put it out earlier this year about how they're planning to do this. Um, speaking of planning, you have a conference uh, in a few weeks, don't you? Uh, next week. It is uh, oh, so Wednesday and Thursday, October 20. I'm sorry, October 12th and 13th. Uh, the 12th is just the evening of reception. And then the 13th is all day. It's it's called the Become um, the Beyond Earth Institute is the organization that has arranged it. It's the first Beyond Earth Symposium that is being held in Washington, D.C. Uh, I believe we're at capacity for the physical location, but you can go ahead and register anyway or contact uh, Steve Wolf, who is the organizer, or you can register virtually and uh, sign in wherever you are. Now, the Beyond Earth Institute represents who? It's, it's got private public consortium space enthusiasts, commercial ent enterprises. Who, who's interested in this? Yeah, it is a nonpartisan independent think tank uh, focused on US space policy, especially forward thinking space policy, You know, getting humans off Earth, getting uh, a settlement or a permanent presence of humanity off Earth. And it was organized, I believe last year was when it was formed. And it is uh, just a collection of individuals who believe in this mission, who believe in the goal of getting humanity off Earth. And there's many reasons why we want to do that. You know, um, the exploration we already talked about, the preservation of humanity, um, making sure that we, you know, become a multiplanetary species for the benefit of humankind, for the benefit of getting rid of Elon Musk. There's just so many reasons. Each person has a different reason for why we want to make sure that we spread our humanity off Earth, you know, creating a new ecosystem in space. Uh, creating those high frontiers, as you mentioned earlier. And so it's, it's an interesting organization where we are trying to influence the policy decisions that the United States is making today, which um, have implications down the line. And how receptive are the people who have the hands on the check writing equipment in Washington? It depends on who you're speaking with. Some people just um, are very focused on the present uh, and some people understand that they need to be thinking about the future. And so one of those things that we have recently been discussing is property rights in space, for example. The US, I'm sorry, the UN Outer Space Treaty does not allow for sovereign nations to, or, or any kind of sovereignty claims on celestial bodies. However, if we're talking about whether it's government agencies or private companies going to the moon and doing activities such as mining resources to create water, for example, or propellant, or even just mining resources to build buildings, uh, you know, infrastructure, landing pads, for example, or roads. You know, what does that mean for property rights? What does it mean if you build a road or a landing pad? Do you own that property? What's it mean if you take the regolith, the dirt and dust that's on the surface of the moon, and you um, sell it? sell it to NASA, for example. NASA has a call out there for three companies to mine the surface of the moon and collect regolith and sell it to NASA. So what kind of property rights do we establish on the moon and how do we work that out? NASA has um, set that precedent that they can buy property rights from commercial companies, but not all organizations around the world, not all states agree with this. So it's figuring this out. And also the idea of that, um, 
there needs to be safety zones. So you don't want to have other activities, mining activities or landing activities, for example, interfere with what somebody else is doing, their science experiment, their camera, whatever it is. And so you have to have safety zones. Does that mean that there's you know, ownership right there or some kind of sovereignty? And so these are the kind of things that we are trying to work out, these really practical but forward-thinking concerns. Well, is there any resurgence of the type of activity that led to the 67 Treaty in terms of getting an international consensus on this? Unfortunately, not with this topic. <laughs> um, I don't believe that there's any interest in creating a new treaty or adding on to this treaty. However, there is something called the Artemis Accords, which has begun by the United States within NASA and the State Department and now has 22, I believe, signatories around the world um, and, and growing, <laughs> where it is an agreement. It is uh, a series of um, you know, bilateral, no, I'm sorry, multilateral agreements between these signatories to say, these are the norms of behavior that we are going to follow. And um, you know, protecting lunar heritage sites, for example, you don't want to squash the boost prints made from Apollo 11 astronauts. That is culturally significant to not just the United States, but the whole of humanity, um, or even the lunar rovers that are on there, both, you know, the, the crewed and uncrewed lunar rovers. That's the kind of thing that you don't want to damage. So making sure that we come to agreements within the United Nations, within, you know, the, the framework of the you know, State Department and other you know, related entities around the world of how we're going to operate both on the moon and in space in general. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting to consider. If, if you abandon a ship and somebody else picks it up, then you're, um, under the laws of salvage, it's mostly yours, isn't it? I don't believe salvage rights actually apply to space, but again, I'm not a lawyer. I think it's more complex than that. I think that ownership needs sure to it is. <laughs> be maintained. And in fact, we do have a private citizen, Richard Garriott, who himself flew to the International Space Station. He bought a ticket through Space Adventures and rode with the, with the, with the, the Russians, but he actually bought a Russian vehicle that is on the surface of the moon. So I don't believe you can claim abandoned hardware, but you can buy it. He bought it. What, he bought what's it. going to do with it? Sell it secondhand or? He bought it for the fun of it, I believe. <laughs> Apart from sort of preening himself and saying, I've got a car parked on the moon. <laughs> we'll have to ask what him. What can he do with it? Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's the vanity of billionaires. I'm quite taken with it all. Um, and I'm sure if I ever get to the moon and I see the car there, I'm not going to take any notice of his property rights. <laughs> Well, it probably won't run. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, it'll bring out the anarchist in me. It'll get towed. And if it was New York, the police department would have towed it by now. It would be left. The Department of the Moon. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what, what is there anything coming up on the agenda? We've got, we've, we've just had the two launches. We've had, um, amazingly enough, you know, two joint launches with the Russian and um, American and Japanese and Italian. Uh, Cosmonauts that was astronauts. actually quite a significant launch because back during the shuttle era, when NASA was regularly launching space shuttles, there was a crew exchange system where one Russian would launch with the crew of the space shuttle and one American would launch with crew of Soyuz. And the United States continued this crew exchange in a sense where they bought seats from Russia during the period where there was no space shuttle and there was no replacement. So we had no other ride. So we bought seats from Russia. But since 2020, SpaceX has been launching its Crew Dragon. And finally, two years later, Russia has decided to allow this cosmonaut, this uh, Anna 
uh, Kikina, I believe is her name. Her, she flew on this latest Crew-5 mission to the International Space Station on a Crew Dragon. And that is significant, not just because it's continuation of that crew exchange, which, which I personally didn't think would continue with the conflict in Ukraine. However, it's also significant because she is only the fifth female cosmonaut ever to fly to space, and which is um, you know, quite mind-boggling as someone who has followed the space industry as a woman. And I know that there has been almost parity when it comes to NASA astronaut classes in recent years, where it's almost 50-50% male and female, um, but the same cannot be said for Russia. So I am glad to see another uh, female cosmonaut get her chance. Do, do, do these, um, I, I was just thinking, is there a transgender quota? Seems to be a topic of the moment. I, I don't believe there's any kind of quota of any kind of gender, but I'm glad to see more representation of humanity flying up there. And, and you mentioned a Japanese, uh, the crew member on Crew 5. And in fact, that's one of the things that could be a real advantage of commercial crew, is that we will see more and more countries who have never flown to space. About 75% of humanity has never seen even one representative of their country fly to space. Uh, so for example, with the Inspiration4 mission that flew with SpaceX, that was the first time a black woman has ever flown a, space, uh, a spacecraft. You know, just different things that we can take for granted that just does not happen because it's been so exclusive. There's been such limited ability to get people to space where now the doors are opening with commercial crew, with um, any kind of access to space stations, commercial space stations, as well as ISS or free flying uh, dragons or in the future, um, who knows what else will be out there, maybe a lunar base and we can get more representation of humanity out there exploring the stars. Just thought, speaking of political correctness, are they cosmonauts or astronauts? Or do we have to be careful? Oh, so that's not political correctness, that's just language. So um, English, we say astronaut, and that is the most widely cre uh, you know, credited term to mean people who go into space. Um, but the Russians have their own language and they say cosmonaut. The Chinese have their own language and taikonaut is one of those terms that's used. And other languages have other terms as well. And in fact, it is controversial as to whether astronaut applies to all people who fly in space or whether it applies to just government astronauts or just people who go to orbit. Uh, so that is not even a, a well agreed upon term. Mm, I got the impression the Russians insisted on cosmonaut even in English. Uh, well, it, it is their language, right? Well, <laughs> we don't speak uh, Russian, so, you know, we, they, they, they speak English with us, and, and I'm happy to say cosmonaut. <laughs> cosmonaut, astronaut, or taikonaut is the Chinese one, yes. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, really, we're speaking English, so it's astronaut. I'm a bit of a purist on this one. <laughs> we, we surrender English to other people. Well, I anticipate the language is continuing to evolve as more and more people go into space. Um, for example, the people who are flying to suborbital space, especially the passengers aboard New Glenn, I'm sorry, New Shepard, who have no control over the spacecraft, so they're not even pilots or you know, not necessarily even crew. What are we going to call them? They're spaceflight participants, according to the FAA's definition, but that doesn't roll off the tongue. So what are we going to do with our language as more and more people get up there? Well, I can think of a few. Orbital parasites is one that springs to mind for billionaires in space, but that's that's betraying my own anarchistic style predilections. Um, I think there's a real benefit to having more and more people see space from above and experience that overview effect. There's a really good article that has an excerpt of William Shatner's new book um, where he explains how that very short flight of 
toward a suborbital new shepherd really affected him and made him see our planet as very fragile. And at 90 years old, he had a really profound change of perspective where he wants to protect planet Earth. And can you imagine more and more people having that perspective and, and changing how they see planet Earth and the way that we interact with our environment or do international relations? Uh, I loved Star Trek, but uh, I hope it doesn't inspire him to more poetry. The article was very poetic, I admit. <laughs> William Shatner, I mean, if, if you saw some of his performances <laughs> when he's trying to raise a buck on his uh, celebrity. Um, I think we're coming towards the end. Is there anything else coming up that you really think that people should know about uh, events here that they can see and watch uh, in connection with that yeah, Artemis day. One mission that should be launching about November 14th or so is the current schedule. So again, that's an uncrewed mission, but it should be the largest rocket that has been launched in about 50 years. <laughs> and so really excited to see that mission. And that will pave the way for the rest of the Artemis missions. Artemis Two will have people on board, which will launch in 2024-ish, um, 2025 more realistically. So that's okay. larger than the moon rockets. That, uh... mm -hmm, the moon rockets, yes. NASA's calling it mega moon rocket. I don't particularly like that name but it is a very large rocket that i'm excited to see launch along with spacex's starship which again in the next year or so we should see that launching as well so these very large missions which will change how we do spaceflight um you know send people back to the moon for the first time in 50 years and we've never had a woman on the moon for example so i'm looking forward to seeing again more representation of humanity going out into the stars um so really looking forward to that hey. i'm writing my third book on people with disabilities going into space. So making sure, again, we have more representative of humanity opening up to have access to space. One final thought, and I'd be remiss if we didn't. What's the carbon footprint of a launch? That's an awful lot of carbon. On the rocket, yes. There has been a lot of discussion about this, and certainly as the technology improves, it'll get more ecologically friendly, um, but it does depend on the rocket. So for example, New Shepard, that suborbital Blue Origin vehicle, only has a byproduct of water. Uh, so it just depends on the rocket, what kind of fuel they use and how the process is. It almost sounds like a steam powered rocket, cyberpunk. <laughs> The only product water. Usually people who view an image of it have a different opinion of, based on how it looks. And I'll, I'll leave that to the listener to Google what a New Shepard rocket looks like. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much, Laura. It's been a, a timely briefing. I hope the conference goes well next week. As Steve was asking me if I could get down there, but nobody's paying for me to go at the moment, let alone into orbit. So um, any of you, any of the correspondents out there, feel happy to sign up for the Washington orbital trip next week. Uh, thank you again, Laura, and thank you from the Foreign Press Association of New York. Please log in, tune in, leave us your email so we can keep you in touch with future briefings, uh, like when we announce the next Mars launch. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much for having me.